Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. There's no limit at all into the the fishing expedition that Mueller is now engaged in. I have confidence in Mueller. The president ought to have confidence in Mueller. And if he has access to everything that his personal attorney has, I can only imagine where that's going to lead. You can't fire the special counsel. You just can't. But this is war. I mean, if you were, if you're, I believe this shows that we're very close now to the end game. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who needs a new lawyer. Again, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Asked about the FBI's early morning raid on his personal attorney, Michael Cohen's office and temporary residence, the president had this to say. So I just heard that they broke into the office of one of my personal attorneys. So when I saw this and when I heard it, I heard it like you did. I said, that is really now in a whole new level of unfairness. You know, spontaneous reactions like that are always a lot more interesting than the official spin that comes out later because, well, they're less calculated. Trump's comments were all the stuff he's been advised not to say, but says anyway. It's the Fox News part of his brain. To paraphrase, the people investigating me are just my political enemies out to get me. Hillary Clinton committed way worse crimes than I did. Lock her up. And I still might obstruct justice by firing Robert Mueller. And hey, screw you, Jeff Sessions. And he kept going on Twitter. Attorney-client privilege is dead. A total witch hunt. So joining me on the line to discuss the witch hunt, or whatever you want to call it, is Asha Rangappa. She's CNN's national security analyst and a former FBI special agent. Asha, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So I have lots of FBI-type questions I want to ask you about this raid on Michael Cohen's office and home, which was a hotel room yesterday. Uh, I guess the first question is, who's responsible for this raid? I know it was the Southern District of New York rather than the special prosecutor's office that led it, but there's at least a theory. Judge Sugarman has a piece up on Slate arguing that maybe what uh, Mueller is doing is sort of hedging his bets in case Trump manages to fire him. There'll be kind of some prosecutions taking place elsewhere. Right. So I think there's three different possibilities that are here. What Judge Sugarman is latching onto is that this was this was called a referral from Rosenstein and the special counsel to the Southern District of New York. And that can be interpreted as literally Mueller finding evidence that is outside the scope of his mandate. Obviously, the Department of Justice still has to investigate anything, anytime they find evidence of a potential crime. So the idea that Jed is suggesting, and I think it's, it's possible, is that this was actually referred to the Southern District of New York for them to essentially take over jurisdiction of the case so that they not only executed the search warrant, but then the case would then continue to be investigated 
by that office, not by Mueller. And what that means is that if Mueller were fired, it would not affect that Southern District case uh, because it's, it's not under Mueller's scope. But there have been a couple of other possibilities uh, thrown out there. One is that the Southern District may have merely been sort of providing logistical support for Mueller. In other words, you know, this this was a search warrant executed in three locations. When the FBI executes search warrants, they use teams of people, you know, 10 to 12, maybe 15, depending on, you know, how large of an area they're searching. Uh, so they would need a lot of manpower that maybe Mueller doesn't have on his team um, or would need that to happen from the local FBI office. And so it's possible that that was what was going on, not that the case was actually transferred. Um, another possibility that Pre Barrara mentioned on Twitter yesterday is that this is still within Mueller's uh, purview, but that this New York team of agents executed the search because they gather uh, attorney-client communications, and what they need is a taint team that goes through and basically combs through what they've collected to only pass on what is approved and relevant to that investigation so that actually privileged communications don't get passed or seen by Mueller's team. I think right now we don't know which of these uh, is the case, but I'm sure we will find out soon. <laughs> well, I guess the, the the other question is, what do we think they were looking for? We're not sure exactly who was looking or whether there was a kind of game of chess going on and in, in who conducted the raid and so on. But what do you what evidence do you think they hope to find from Michael Cohen? So the clues for me are that the crimes that the search warrant apparently referenced. Remember that when a the FBI presents a affidavit for a search warrant to a judge, they have to specify the crimes that they believe have been violated and that these places or things will have evidence of that crime. And apparently here what they're looking at is bank fraud and campaign finance violations. Bank fraud is basically obtaining money through illegal means or defrauding a financial institution, lying to a bank. And since it appears that at least some of the things that they were looking for were related to the Stormy Daniels contract, I think what could be what they could be investigating is whether Trump was aware of this payment that was being made, you know, to to keep Stormy Daniels quiet. Uh, because if he did, then it could be considered a contribution for the benefit of this campaign, which would have uh, been required to be disclosed uh, to the FEC. You know, relatedly, if they were trying to conceal the source of where the money was coming from uh, or passing it through, you know, channels that they shouldn't have been uh, in order to kind of cover up who was giving the money and and where it was uh, the source of it, um, that could also be what evidence uh, that they might have been trying to uncover. And the bank fraud or wire fraud could have been if Michael Cohen's transferring this $130,000 and there's a question on the form, why do you want this money? And he makes up something or some sort of cover story. Is that, would that be bank fraud? Yes. You know, you can't, you have to be, you have to provide uh, the bank with an honest um, answer uh, because these are the kinds of things that, you know, can be asked for, uh, disclosed for other reasons. And when you have a payment of that amount, they will ask you why what you're doing. 
I mean, Michael Cohen must know as someone who was involved at the very least in Donald Trump's business in Eastern Europe and had to be sensitive to the rules around money laundering that big wire transfers routinely get reported and questioned. I mean, is that likely how Mueller got on to him, that there was a transaction flagged through the regular process of vetting big bank transfers? Well, we know that there was a suspicious activity report filed in September 2017 about this particular, or about the $130,000 transaction, and that was provided to Mueller's team. I believe that that is the reporting. Um, That's how they got Elliot Spitzer, too, a suspicious activity report on cash withdrawal that was over $10,000. That's yeah. right. That's right. And what's involved in the question of whether there is attorney-client privilege protecting some of this information? I mean, I think a lot of people have heard, you know, the kind of truism that, well, if you tell your lawyer you murdered somebody, that's that's protected by the privilege. But if you ask him to bury, help you bury the body, that's not. So the lawyer can't help in the commission of a crime. How would that question play out around this sort of investigation? Well, there are a few ways. Remember that the attorney-client privilege uh, is held by the client, and it only exists between the client and the attorney. So to the extent that any of these communications included third parties, for example, emails where they were someone CC'd or BCC'd, um, that would actually constitute a waiver of the privilege. Uh, what you're talking about is an exception to the privilege called the crime fraud exception. And as you said, you can confess things to your attorney about stuff that's happened in the past, but you can't use your attorney to facilitate an ongoing commission of a crime or to conceal the commission of a crime. And so if what the uh, FBI knew is that these communications included that kind of information that would constitute an exception. Um, one last thing is that the privilege may not have even been relevant in this case. Remember that with regard to the Stormy Daniels contract, there were three parties to this contract. There's the party named David Dennison, there's Peggy Peterson, and there's Essential Consultants LLC, which is sort of a shell company. That's Cohen's Delaware Corporation he set up to make the payment, right? That's correct. Michael Cohen represented essential consultants. He did not represent Trump. He can't represent two parties to, you know, the same transaction unless, you know, their interests are completely aligned. But he, on top of this, he is suggesting that he wasn't acting on Trump's behalf. He has said that explicitly. And Trump has also corroborated that by saying that I didn't know anything about this. Uh, I didn't even know anything about this agreement. So, so there's is, no client. There's no client, so there's, there's no, no attorney-client privilege. Exactly. I yeah. mean, just because you have an attorney does for, for one matter or many matters doesn't mean that every single thing you say to them is privileged for the rest of your life. With regard to this particular matter or transaction, he, if Cohen was not acting as Trump's attorney, then their communications about it would not be privileged. Yeah. And can Michael Cohen still be Donald Trump's lawyer after this raid has taken place? I mean, presumably charges are going to follow at some point. I guess it's not a certainty. But, you know, Michael Cohen is now a potential defendant and potential witness. Is he still Trump's lawyer? No, I don't think so. Uh, He can't represent someone with whom he may have adverse interests or any interest. That's a conflict of interest. So he can't be acting as Trump's attorney, you know, if, for example, he may have to disclose information that is incriminating to Trump, or if Trump will be a witness, or if if Cohen will be a witness. I mean, this is just a hot mess. And I think that Trump would be wise to simply not have any communication with Michael Cohen 
going forward. Well, that's the kind of good advice he never seems to take. I mean, you know, the other possibility just seems to be, and maybe this is part of what Mueller is trying to hedge against, but that Donald Trump will just say, screw this, I'm going to pardon him. Can he pardon Michael Cohn right now in advance of charges? And then is what happens? I think he can pardon kind of prospectively. Uh, this is sort of the forward, you know, I pardon him for any crimes that have been committed until this point. So in other words, it's for conduct that's been committed that, that uh, Michael Cohen has been, is being investigated for. And this is still a federal crime. Having said that, it's important to remember that certain kinds of financial crimes, particularly involving banks uh, in New York, could constitute violations of state law. Uh, that is the financial epicenter for the country. New York had its own financial criminal statutes. So if, if uh, the president pardoned Cohen and then the attorney general of New York decided to bring charges, then President Trump could not do anything because those aren't crimes against the United States. Those would be crimes against the state of New York. So what do you think the next shoe that drops is? Will it be charges against Cohn? Will it be Trump taking some action against Mueller or Rosenstein? Yesterday, he was very hot when they asked him questions and brought up again that he wished the Sessions had told him he was going to recuse himself so he could have fired him in advance of that. Um, I mean, he seemed to be setting the stage or at least considering some some kind of obstructive action in the investigation. What's going to happen next in this drama, Asha? <laughs> yeah, so to your point that he doesn't really follow his lawyer's advice, um, talking about potentially obstructing justice is not uh, ordinarily what you want your client to be doing, especially on national television. Um, and that's sort of more or less what he was alluding to yesterday. I honestly have, you know, I think that this investigation, the twists and turns that it's, it's taken, um, have been so extraordinary and surprising. I mean, you know, Jacob, I do want to emphasize that Executing a search warrant on someone's attorney, the attorney for the personal attorney for the president of the United States, no less, is really extraordinary. I mean, that's extreme. It's an extreme, unprecedented step, even. It's unprecedented, and it really would have been vetted at so many levels by, you know, Rod Rosenstein, by, you know, the highest levels of the Department of, you know, the FBI and Department of Justice internally, um, just kind of going after a lawyer. You know, who's representing someone is requires heightened levels of approval. And then to go in front of a judge who would have had to give this extra scrutiny. And then on top of that, like I said, this is the president of the United States and nobody's going to want their name on something that's not airtight. So I would never have expected something like this. Um, I never expected that Mueller was going to indict 13 Russians. I mean, we know he's going after Russians. I mean, so I, I think we can expect more indictments for sure. Um, but I think really it's impossible to predict what will come next. And I do think that what we need to keep an eye on right now is how Trump is going to deal with the reality of a situation that is unfolding before him. But I think you make a crucial point that this isn't just a, a kind of gambit in a in a chess game. I mean, this is this is a strategic move that Mueller has made doing this, either because he thinks it's essential for whatever evidence he's gathering in relation to Trump himself, or because he came across evidence of crimes that were so serious on Cohen's part that that he thought he had to pursue them. 
That's right. And I think it also suggests, I mean, the, the fact that he executed a search warrant, we saw this with Manafort also, that these are records, you know, depending on what he was asking for that he could subpoena. I mean, he could ask for it to be turned over, but clearly he didn't believe that that was going to result in Cohen being completely forthcoming and giving all the information that he had in his possession. So there is, I think, clearly signals here that he doesn't believe that they are cooperating fully. I've been speaking to Asha Rangappa of CNN. Asha, thanks for joining me on the show today. Thanks so much for having me, Jacob. I'll be back in just a moment with more Trumpcast. We'll speak to Adam Davidson of The New Yorker. Adam Davidson is joining me on the line. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker and the co-founder of Planet Money, among many other distinctions. He's also one of our favorite regulars here at Trumpcast. Adam, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you, Jacob. I love coming on. I thought Adam Davidson, as soon as I saw that the FBI had raided Michael Cohn's legal office at Rockefeller Center, raided or, as Donald Trump, Trump says, uh, broke in. Break-ins usually what the bad guys do. A raid is what the what the legal authority does. Unless it's the deep state. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I guess the first question is, who is or was Michael Cohn in the Donald Trump world? What did he do for Donald Trump? So um, he's often referred to as Donald Trump's lawyer, but I think that is a mistaken way to understand Michael Cohen. The uh, Trump organization was never very large. Um you know, a few dozen people uh, at, at the sort of headquarters in Trump Tower. And the staff was divided into deal makers and lawyers and then support personnel. And there were always a lot more lawyers than deal makers. Deal makers were people who actually went out in the world, met with people, brought proposed deals into the office. And then the lawyers would be assigned the sort of relatively boring work of, you know, finishing the contract, setting up the deal terms, all of that kind of stuff. Cohen was never integrated into the legal office in any serious way. He didn't generally handle routine legal work. He was a deal guy. Mm. He was a guy traveling the country and, and often the world bringing deals to Donald Trump. And often these were some of the deals about which we have an awful lot of questions, um, deals in the former Soviet Union, etc. So, so I think of him as a deal maker who happened to have a law degree. Now, what's Really interesting, though, is as soon as Trump became president, he had a host of lawyers in his office. He had a general counsel, et cetera, et cetera. And he chose this guy who really never played the role of lawyer to become his personal attorney. So Donald Trump had access to Trump organization staff lawyers. He had access, obviously, to the White House lawyers. But there's nobody who was Donald Trump's lawyer until Michael Cohen was given that position shortly after the election. And a lot of people wondered why Michael Cohen's not a guy you would pick to be your lawyer, yeah. unless what you really wanted was attorney-client privilege with one of your key deal makers. Well, he also must really have trusted this guy, right? And this is a guy who worked on those deals very closely with Trump's children, with Don Jr. and Ivanka, who were the ones involved in the international deals. And in particular, Cohen wasn't the only thing he did, as we know from Stormy Daniels, among other issues. But his specialty, one specialty, 
specialty of his was this sort of Kazakhstan, Georgia, Russia, the ex-Soviet Union, where he's the one trying to do all these deals. But they didn't actually pull off these deals, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the issue with the Trump organization, you know, there's often a discussion ha- that happens among journalists or prosecutors, you know, was this corruption or was it incompetence? And sometimes it's both. And, and we don't know. We don't know. <laughs> um, it's alleged incompetence and alleged corruption, um, possibly. But international deals are really interesting in a very short period of time, starting in real earnest around 2005, 2006, the Trump organization has now been well cut out of all of basically every legitimate bank and financing stream in the United States and London and all the financial Right, so we're post-bankruptcy. It's a crucial fact. He can't borrow money the way he used to borrow money. Exactly. And he basically can't raise the kind of money you need to do traditional uh, development. Like, you know, you raise hundreds of millions of dollars buy a building or build a building, rehab it, and then sell it off, you know, that takes an unbelievable amount of capital and borrowing, and 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 that's just closed off to him. And sort of accidentally, the Trump organization happens into this model of international licensing deals and just saying, all right, we'll sell our name to you for your building. And in some cases, we'll actually manage the building, whether it's a hotel or a residence, and we'll give you guidance on how to build it. And you give us money. And what's great about this from the Trump organization's perspective is they get the payment up front, you know, which could often be a million bucks, two million bucks. And then if the project is a total bust, it doesn't matter. They've already made the Trump organization has already made its money. And then also it is legally in their view, as the current general counsel, Alan Garten, told me in their view, they are immune essentially from prosecution for things like Foreign Corrupt Practices Act sanctions violation, money laundering. It seems fairly clear, well, we know for a fact that that many of, of the Trump organization's partners overseas were involved in, in a variety of financial crimes, but in their view, they were immune from them because it was a licensing deal. And as Alan Garten said to me, the flow of money was the wrong direction. We can't pay a bribe if we're receiving money. Anyway, uh, other lawyers don't agree with that. But what's remarkable to me is this Trump organization, this relatively small organization, you know, it had a handful of hotels, a few golf resorts, is suddenly negotiating dozens of deals all over the world. And in the Trump organization, there are three people running this international operation, Michael Cohen, Ivanka Trump, and Don Jr. And they are doing deals in some of the most problematic, corrupt nations on earth. You know, they're doing deals in Azerbaijan, in Georgia, in Kazakhstan. And then as we now know, even their deals and, you know, their two deals in Canada have been investigated for potential financial fraud because of the partners. So Michael Cohen is central to that. And and the key thing here is he is uh, the one non-Trump who is central to this incredibly important um, operation within the Trump organization. But part of the reason Trump picked him as his personal lawyer after he was elected president is his extreme loyalty. I mean, Michael Cohen is always kind of going out and saying, you know, I would take a bullet for Donald Trump. I would do anything for Donald Trump. If the strategy here is to is to flip a guy who knows a lot, Michael Cohen would seem a pretty unlikely candidate for, for being flipped. I mean, won't he go to jail and wait for his pardon or not? This is very hard to know. I mean, I've, I've, I've spoken to Michael Cohen several times, but I, I would certainly not say I know him well. Um, and, and certainly he has very loudly and publicly proclaimed his loyalty 
to Trump. That being said, in my experience, having talked to many dozens of people who've worked for the Trump organization, I, I think it's safe to say I have not spoken to a single person, even people who work for Donald Trump for, for years and years, who truly has a deep loyalty or liking for Trump. These are all very transactional relationships. You know, I stick with Trump so long as it's good for me, and Trump sticks with me so long as it's good for Trump. I would also say, again, this is speculation based on lots of reporting, but not, I don't know, that his loyalty to Ivanka and Don Jr. might not be as intense as his loyalty to the dad. Now, he might consider that to be one and the same, that that he can't betray them without betraying the father. But his, you know, the day-to-day dealings, the actual, what's this deal going to look like in Georgia, in Kazakhstan, those were more typically done with the children, certainly by 2010, 11, 12, than with Donald Trump Sr., the president. So, um, so that would be a thought I would have, that if I were Ivanka and Don Jr., and if some of these deals did have irregularities that could be legally problematic, again, these are ifs, although Jesse Eisinger ProPublica said, we we don't know. There's only smoke, but it's like a five-alarm fire of smoke. I, I'd be pretty nervous, I think. So, Adam, you've looked at, at some of these deals, like the Kazakhstan deal and the George deal, as closely as anybody. I mean, if you could get Michael Cohen under oath, what would you want to ask him? What do you, after in, in, looking into them, what do you want to know about those deals? So, I think one key question is, what explicitly did they know and 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 when did they know it? About, about money laundering, their, you mean? About their partners. Yeah. And, and yeah. So as I've reported, I, I don't think the Georgia deal. Now, Michael Cohen was not involved as far as I could fi- figure out with, with the Azerbaijan deal. But the Georgia deal didn't make a lot of sense from a business standpoint. It was, you know, a major international luxury project in a town that had very little international luxury you know, with a partner who had never done anything of this scale, et cetera. So it seems to me that a reasonable question would have been, what are, what are they up to? What are they doing? And there is at least evidence that they may have been involved in, in a bank fraud and subsequent money laundering. Again, as I carefully showed in, in the New Yorker, we don't, there's a lot we don't know, but, but, um, so, so I would want to know, what did he know? What, what did he know about his partners? And, also, crucially, what did he tell Donald Trump? What did he tell Ivanka and Don Jr.? Is it possible that he knew bad things about these partners and he shared it with them? That would be really, really, really important. That would be central to any prosecution. Um, I'd also want to know a lot about how these deals came about. I mean, it, it's sort of fascinating how um, this company, the Trump Organization, goes from basically having a minuscule international presence to suddenly having dozens and dozens of deals with a group of people who are, you know, fairly complex oligarchs, uh, you know, with, with complicated, potentially legally damaging backgrounds. And so I still don't fully understand how that happened. You know, was there sort of a point person that they plugged in with who, who introduced them around? Was it happenstance that they happened to do, for example, deals all over Central Asia at the same time with a group of oligarchs, but it was it was not overlapping. I'd want to know that. Obviously, how did this New York-based real estate developer suddenly have all of these ties all over the former Soviet Union and eventually in Russia? You know, the Agalarovs, Russian-based Azerbaijani business people who are so central to any investigation of Trump, you know, they say they just reached out to him and met him in Vegas. Um, 
the Georgians say, you know, they had a friend who was friends with Michael Cohen, and that's how that relationship happened. And then that friend introduced them to the Kazakhs. And it and these are, you know, fairly benign explanations about how a guy in, in New York City without any known connections to the former Soviet Union is suddenly doing business with so many people in the former Soviet Union. But I don't feel like I fully grasp that picture, and I, and I very much want to. You know, Michael Cohen's going to need a better lawyer if you've been watching the one he has on TV. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but can Trump legally pay for his lawyer's lawyer? Well, his lawyer, David Schwartz, is a long time, as I understand it, a long time uh, Trump lawyer and, you know, has, has represented the Trump organization many times. He says he's a personal friend of Cohen's and that's why he's creating this relationship. You know, why that's why he's defending him. But, um, I, I don't think I'm the only one to think this is a guy who's suddenly way out of his depth. This is a real like New York lower court kind of lawyer, and he's suddenly operating. He's um, like a subplot on Better Call Saul. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's it. It, it is. Um, it went from fun to kind of <laughs> embarrassing to watch him on on TV. I mean, he has one move, which happens to be Cohen's move. Anything you say at all that is negative is the most outrageous thing anyone's ever said in the history of the freaking world. And things that seem really weird, like filing a lawsuit against a porn star a couple of weeks before an election, are just coincidences. This happens, you know, this happens all the time among serious business people. And, and it's a move that I'm surprised it ever works, but it certainly doesn't work when you're doing it all the time on 24-hour cable. He sure seems to be having a lot of fun, though. Uh, <laughs> Schwartz. It seems like a fun time in his life. Um, but yeah, I, w- I would expect Cohen would switch counsel, although, you know, you then and, and I think your question of is Trump paying him? We have no idea. But, you know, Schwartz is a longtime Trump attorney. So it doesn't it seems like a reasonable question to ask. I've been speaking to Adam Davidson of The New Yorker. Adam, thanks for joining me again today. Thank you, Jacob. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.